Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nation Children's Hospital, and I'm joined today by Dr. Jennifer Lee. Hey. Also a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nation Children's Hospital. Yes. How's it going? Oh, things are so good getting ready for the holidays. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What are you guys going to do? Well, Cece's first Christmas. So that'll be super fun. I can't wait to see her laughing at the lights and I don't know, just all the normal Christmas stuff with a tree. That's what we celebrate anyway. Oh, that's going to be awesome. How about you? We are bringing Emma to Taiwan. What? Did I not told you this? I think you did, but I forgot. Yeah. So we're going to Taiwan. Uh, not looking forward to the 15-hour flight from uh, Chicago to Taipei. That's a pretty long one. But hopefully Emma watches like five movies back to back and does not bother us. <laughs> or sleeps. Maybe sleep. Maybe sleep. Let her sleep for as long as possible. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Emma gets to meet her, like my grandma. My one living grandparent is there. Oh, fun. So she's going to meet her great-grandmother. And then, uh, yeah, and a whole bunch of relatives she's never met. Awesome. Well, today we are not talking. Wait, what are we talking about today? Hmm. We were talking about a topic that we wanted to talk about a long time ago. Oh, yes, yes, yes. But we couldn't because the guest is from our institution and we try to space these out. I know. Like max one to two a year. I know. But Dr. Muhammad Khan is just so great. And we are talking about the cutting edge. Get it? The cutting edge. (laughs) cutting edge of pediatric endoscopy. That's right. And also, he loves this podcast. Yes, we he get feedback on every especially, episode. <laughs> he especially loves the banter. So honestly, I think we should just keep on talking for like another 15 minutes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we got to get on to the stuff that actually matters. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I think like in terms of our topic, we've already had several endoscopy related episodes. Yeah. As we talk about with him. Yeah. Um, we've covered everything from like how to teach how to do a good endoscopy, mm-hmm. the challenging colonoscopy, talk yeah. about ERCP, EUS, talk about training, for training, endoscopy. yeah. Mm-hmm. But for him, we want to talk about what's like the no pun intended cutting edge of endoscopy. Like what's what's like the current stuff that's just starting to happen in pediatric endoscopy, yeah. and what's coming in the future, yeah. Can't we'll wait. See. Can't wait. So tell us about our guest. Oh, yeah. So Dr. Muhammad Khan is an associate professor of pediatrics at The Ohio State University and the director of endoscopy at Nationwide Children's Hospital, two offices down from you. And yeah, today we're going to be talking to him about one of his passions, which is advanced endoscopy, specifically looking at POEM, which we'll mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about, and some of the other cutting edge things that are coming for endoscopy. And also his work with companies to like develop stuff for children. Oh yeah. Should we go ahead and plug baby shark tank for next year? Oh yeah, we should. Start thinking about your ideas. Yes. Congrats on that, by the way. I forgot Ah, to tell you. Thank you. you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But yes. So, you know, we'll talk about his uh, work and kind of development and innovation. And so if anyone has a like-minded interest, it's never too early to start thinking about your uh, submission for the baby shark tank competition Anyway, uh, ready? (laughs) On to the show. On to the show. Dr. Muhammad Khan, welcome to Bell Sounds, finally. Yay. Thanks for finally walking down the 10 feet between our offices to join us. Can I tell everyone? Well, he was late. Yeah, what the heck? (laughs) Well,. I so I got distracted this morning. I had a patient to take care of as well. Oh, so okay. sorry, yeah, I wasn't patient care. It's that. okay. Patient care comes first. Yes, yes, for yeah. sure. You're good. You're good. So okay, hard one. And as a longtime listener, you know this question is coming. So how would you describe yourself in one sentence? So before I even say that, I have to say thank you to both of you for having me on. Um, this is really awesome. I actually love what you guys do. I started listening to Bell Sounds about a year ago when I moved here. So I drove up from Mm. Florida Mm -hmm. and listened to many, the entire drive. Uh, Wow. Incredible. So I know a lot about the Bell Sounds episode. (laughs) Um, And it's great. So, and congratulations to both of you guys for the Terry Lung. Thank you. Young. Terry Lee. Terry Lee. Young Young Educator. Educator Award. Award. Yes. Um, That's a huge deal. Really, really is amazing. So uh, it's an honor. Um, okay. This question. One sentence. One sentence. This is hard to encapsulate because like, there's a lot about me. 
Um, but I'm going to try to share in a way that maybe you guys kind of know me so that maybe the listeners can also know me. So I am a, um, recently a new first time homeowner. Ooh, I am. I love it. And I am obsessed with Costco mm-hmm. and pizza, but not Costco pizza. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That Wait. is not what I thought you were going to say at all. Well, we had some pre-recording conversations, and I was like very curious what direction you were going to go. Yeah, I went other ways. No, that's that's what I wanted. Okay, that's what, that's what we want. You got to give people with it. so like, but you don't like Costco pizza? I actually don't either. Dang, it's this uh, really shocked me. Yeah, you know, I think if you don't go to Costco very often, and you have it every once in a while, it's good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got, like I told you, I got obsessive with Costco and so I was like, Oh, every time I just got to go and get the pizza cause it's $2. Mm. Yeah. It's so, so cheap, cheap. huge slices. And it's a huge slice and you've spent all this time at Costco shopping and looking at food and you're kind of hungry and it's usually around lunchtime Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you've had some samples to kind of wet the palate. Uh, so you think, okay, Costco pizza, here we go. Yes. And about like the third or fourth week doing that, I realized that this was a mistake. So okay, it's also so, seven hundred calories a slice. I know it's not Who's good they publish that. Well, the next question you can make this pizza related or not, or Costco related or not. So, if someone were to visit our great city of Columbus, Ohio, where you've now resided for over a year, what would you recommend that they do here or eat here, or what do you think? I think last month, October was incredible we started the month apple picking Uh and then as the month goes on just the colors changing and so where we moved to there's just um the road kind of leading up there is just filled with trees and so the colors of the foliage is just incredible very vivid and bright um ohio state is like building up their season Mm -hmm. so far Mm -hmm. so i think a football game is important as well agreed i think uh going to the zoo I mean, Columbus Zoo is famous. You know, it's a Jack Hanna Zoo, and it is really lovely. We have our membership there every year. Um, And as far as, like, places to eat, so I love going to the food halls because that's kind of different to me coming to the Midwest here. So I go to North Market a lot with Mm -hmm. my family. What I really love about it is that there's so much diversity in the types of cuisine you get there. So you can go from Vietnamese to Somali, fast casual, you know, and then everything else in between, barbecue, Cuban, et cetera, et cetera. So th- those are all great, great things that people should do. Honestly, you know, if, but a lot of listeners are Pete's GI docs. And so I think my one of my favorite things is the group we have here and like our trivia nights or happy hours or even just like come and hang out and have lunch with us um, because we do that every single day and it does not get old. Oh, it does not. Mm. Best um, part of the day. Yeah. So lots of options. Yeah, that's great. Wow. Spoken like a true native uh, no, central Ohioan. But we've had a lot of people come from Nationwide, including ourselves, who've given recommendations, and nobody has said come to lunch at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Not yeah, even. It's like, I mean, they kind of need a badge to get in here, but uh, yeah, excellent answer. Excellent answer. Yeah. Shout out to Hoyo's Kitchen, oh. a Somali fast casual yes. place. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, they, excellent. They are fantastic. Yeah, they're fantastic. Um, All right. Okay, moving on to the topic. Medical stuff. How did you first develop your interest in endoscopy? So I've always loved working with my hands since I was very young. That helps. That's my way of solving challenging problems. So when I was in pediatric residency, I just kind of naturally gravitated towards those subspecialties that were more procedural. And so I, I actually thought I was going to end up in critical care hmm. and, and be in the PICU. It was my PEDS GI elective as an intern where I found they handed me the scope mm-hmm. and said, here, try this. And I was like, whoa, this is hard. And this is something that I think will never get boring because it will always be a challenge. And so I loved that aspect of the procedural component of GI. And I mean, there's everything else, you know, that we love. Um, and, you know, it's kind of the holistic approach to taking care of patients, blah, blah, blah. You know, that I think is great. But the, from the technical side, you know, that's where I started to fall in love with endoscopy was as, a, as an intern. Um, so I would be post-call and I would go over to the endoscopy suite and just hang out. The folks that I worked with were really supportive. Um, so when I ended up in fellowship, 
I just tried to dedicate as much time as I could with endoscopy. We did ERCP there with an adult provider who had come over. And so I started getting some hands-on exposure with that. That's sort of where it started. You know, it's been great. So my, my understanding is the path for a trainee to become an advanced endoscopist, which we've touched on a little bit in past episodes, so it's not straightforward. It's, it seems like everyone kind of takes a little bit of a different path. How did you personally get the training you needed to do things like ERCP and, and POEM, which we'll talk about? How did that path look like for you? This is challenging. So I, I, my experience, I think, highlights a lot of the different ways people can get trained. So one of the ways people get trained is like during fellowship. So I got hands-on exposure as a fellow. And then actually that, that adult GI doc who would come over and do our ERCPs, like I started going over to her hospital mm-hmm. and got credentialed there and started doing ERCPs over there too with the adults. My volumes were not enough to then just kind of like be on my own afterward. And then, so then the next way you can get trained is kind of piecemeal. So like, you know, you can start working. And so here I am junior faculty and I started working with, um, a few different adult GI docs in the region, just trying to kind of find a way to get trained. And that, yeah. that part, piecemeal training, especially nowadays, is very, very difficult. So I practiced for 10 years um, and finally said, you know what, I think I just need to go and do a full-on fellowship. And so I applied to ASGE and went into an adult advanced endoscopy fellowship. So that was tough. We had to leave our jobs, leave our families, leave our friends, leave everything behind and uh, move down to Florida on a whim, basically, but kind of pursuing a passion and and kind of a a life goal of doing these types of things. So, you know, initially I went in just thinking, I will do a lot of ERCP, I'll get endoscopic ultrasound, and then whatever else comes along the way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can get trained as a fellow, you can get training as faculty, in a piecemeal fashion, or nowadays, I think what folks are really focused on is kind of a more dedicated one-year uh, training program. I actually spent a few extra months in my training program, so stayed on partly to just build on my skills, uh, but mostly then then to just really dive into third space endoscopy yeah. um, and stuff. So that's where a lot of my interest then started to grow was during my fellowship. Awesome! Wow! Well, yeah. So, we'll, uh, so now yeah. I'm here at Nationwide. It's been about mm-hmm. a year. And my practice is exclusively endoscopy. So yeah. I don't do anything else. So how wow. common or rare is that? Yeah. Um, it's getting a little more common. So certainly in the adults, it's very common. Um, you have people who are just dedicated to this. I think in pediatrics, it is starting to develop. Um, there's a few folks who are interventional endoscopists like myself who have largely endoscopic practice. There's a few who have kind of 50-50, but I, I would say it's getting there. You know, there's probably maybe five to 10 of us who have 80 plus percent endoscopic practices. And so I'm, I'm lucky I'm a hundred percent. Wow. Awesome. So that career path actually can exist. And for any of the fellows or any trainees who are listening, like don't be afraid to go out, hang out in the endoscopy lab, talk to some of your faculty. You'll never know where you'll end up. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, it's not just like an, endoscopy like I love training endoscopy but I think what really is important for the trainees and fellows especially to know is that if there's something you're really into go ahead and just do that extra year of training yeah Um, it will never serve you wrong because it's an investment in yourself and yes it's an extra year and yes you're not going to get paid very well Um, and it's time and it's hard work but it can be so worth it when it comes to career development Mm -hmm. now it's not it doesn't have to be for everybody but so that's one of the things I try to tease out with a lot of the fellows is what, where are you headed and, and how do, how do we help build you to be that better person? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So, um, like we mentioned, we had several endoscopy episodes already. So Dr. Louis E on the challenging colonoscopy, Roberto Gugig on ERCP US, EUS, Catherine Walsh for teaching endoscopy, Diana Lerner on foreign body, Brad Barth on an intro to advanced endoscopy, and even Jen Lightdale on QI. So, so many episodes. But today we're really focused on that cutting edge, pun intended. How many times are we going to say that? <laughs> I know, we got to say pun intended every time. Um, the procedures that are really just starting to make their way from the adult world into pediatrics. So let's start with this third space, um, the esophageal poem and then gastric poem. Can you tell us what is poem and what is this third space that you mentioned and <laughs> few people have actually entered? Yeah, so these are all like 
great people that we've had on Battle Sounds to talk about endoscopy. And I think we should have many, many more episodes about endoscopy. Yeah, um, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, let's talk about third space first. Um, so what is it? So first space is where we normally work, in the lumen. Okay, second space is where the surgeons typically work, in the peritoneum or kind of outside of the lumen. Where we don't want to go. Where very few of us have ended up. Um, and try to avoid. Yes. And then there's the third space, which is sort of the space in between. Technically, it's the submucosal space. So third space endoscopy is a submucosal endoscopy. It's that layer of the GI tract that's between the mucosa and the outer muscularis propria. Um, and so that's where POEM and other procedures go into. So let's talk a little bit about that. So POEM, so first conceived by a kind of a Jay Pashrika, famous Stanford neurogastroenterologist in the mid 2000s. And then in 2008, uh, POEM was uh, put into practice uh, by um, folks in Japan. It then came, carried over into the US a few years later. And so the procedure itself is essentially you, you're creating a submucosal tunnel. So it starts with a small mucosal incision, and then you're expanding the submucosal space and dissecting it to allow the scope to pass through this tunnel. And then it kind of gets to the area of intent. So most of the time, it's a, when we talk about poem, we're talking about myotomy. So you're getting to the region where you want to do the myotomy. And so there has to be this difference between where you enter and then travel down and then where you do your myotomy further away. And then you kind of back out of this tunnel when you're done, and then you close with a few clips. And so that... Where you're closing is just above intact muscle, and then further down in the tunnel is where you do your myotomy, where it's no longer intact. So you're creating a perforation, mm-hmm. but it's in a very controlled fashion, and then you close it up with a few clips, and then you're done. So that's the poem procedure, uh, more or less. Third space endoscopy also entails other things, though, too. So it's actually widely used um, to, to resect polyps. So this procedure is called endoscopic submucosal dissection, or ESD. And so this, this method, you know, what we are doing here is to get up underneath polyps, especially those that are dysplastic or even early neoplasia, and get up underneath them, dissect that under, and then kind of resect the whole thing on block. So you're wow. getting one big polyp. It can be as small as 2 centimeters. Sure. It can be as big as 15 centimeters. And it takes time to do, but... So this is what third space endoscopy is, is just trying to approach things differently to try to provide a less invasive approach for the patient. So, you know, let's talk about polyps for a second. So those patients who would have a dysplastic polyp or even especially neoplasia, early neoplasia, would all go to surgery. Mm-hmm. They would lose half their colon, maybe the whole colon. Mm. Now you can just go in and just do a polyp, quote unquote, kind of like a polypectomy. It takes a few hours, maybe, maybe even a lot less, and you wake up and you still have your colon. Wow. Yeah, that's and incredible. Yeah. Worst case scenario, the polyp is more invasive. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're going to end up getting surgery. Best case scenario, you saved your polyp and you got the entire polyp out on block and you know all the margins, you're cured. Yeah. Saved your colon. Crazy. Um, okay. But you have to ask more details about echolasia because with the armodalist. Yes, it's only natural. And uh, we touched on that a little bit with uh, a Jay Calls episode in Echolasia. But, you know, I think from from the pediatric side, poem, the first thing we think about is, you know, esophageal poem for Echolasia. And uh, especially with more people doing that in the pediatric population, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what are the indications? Like, what do we know about how it compares to what we've done in the past, like Heller myotomy and, uh, and what kind of like ages are we looking at and size, you know, is that something that we can think about for everybody or mm-hmm. what are your thoughts? I know it's like a whole episode by itself, but <laughs> please tell us. No, that's okay. I have all day. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, all right. So poem can be used in lots of different places in the GI tract. Uh, we most commonly use this in the esophagus. Yes. Can you first Say, what does poem stand oh for? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we probably should do that. It's just a poem. Yeah. It's no, like, know, a like a high rhyming uh, no, no, set no. series of words. Gosh, it's much the opposite. So, all right, per oral endoscopic myotomy. I don't know that the name necessarily discloses a lot. Essentially, you're doing endoscopy. Of course, that's usually per oral. Um, and then you're doing a myotomy. But it doesn't really describe that whole kind of third space. So poem is a great term. Third space endoscopy is another good term. Submucosal endoscopy, whatever you want to call it. These procedures are performed usually in uh, achalasia. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so 
when we're doing esophageal poem, we're looking at uh, treating obstructive processes of the esophagus. That can typically be caused by like a non-relaxing lower esophageal sphincter, as we see in achalasia, and then also in esophago-gastro-junction outlet obstruction. Eggju. Eggju. EG junction outflow obstruction. So this is now kind of becoming the widely accepted method for treating um, these disorders um, in adults. Almost, you know, some would argue like becoming the standard of care now. I think this is also a great tool for salvage therapy. So patients who have achalasia who've been treated previously with anything, poem, heller myotomy, pneumatic balloon dilation, Botox injections, you know, you can use poem as sort of a salvage. And I think what's really cool is like in a patient, especially who's had heller myotomy in the past and they've done an anterior myotomy. Mm -hmm. So now you can go in and endoscopically perform a posterior myotomy if, if further uh, myotomy is needed for, um, a persistently symptomatic patient in kids. Like, do we know like, how does it compare to the stuff that we've used traditionally? So in, in kids, when we talk about achalasia specifically, uh, we talk about th- three main treatment methods. So I'm going to leave Botox injection out of this because I think sure. it's very temporary. Um, so when we're talking about kind of more definitive therapies, we talk first about pneumatic balloon dilation, which has been around forever and the balloons haven't really progressed in their technology and you're using a very old kind of sphygmomanometer to dilate this balloon. The balloons are big. They're 30 to 40 millimeters in diameter. And you're kind of using them under fluoroscopy to dilate this lower esophageal sphincter. It's a good procedure, um, but it's been shown in studies to have require multiple dilations to kind of achieve that long-term sustained result. The downside of it is, you know, even after one dilation, a lot of patients will end up back in the hospital with persistent symptoms of achalasia. The other downside is the risk of uh, perforation. So the risk is variable depending on what study you look at, but it can be between four to 30%. I would say most of the time it's between four to 5% in studies, but there's been some studies showing higher numbers depending on what your method is. So a lot of times to minimize that risk of perforation, people are using the smallest balloon and then bring them back a few weeks later and then do a procedure again. So you're getting two, if not three dilations within the first couple of months to achieve a low perforation risk with a high outcome success. The other procedure we talk about is the Heller myotomy. So surgical approach, come in laparoscopically, pull the esophagus down into the abdomen and perform uh, the myotomy incision is coming from outside to in. So the incision is coming from the muscularis propria and then hopefully stops at the submucosa. But sometimes it can dissect through and through and create essentially a perforation. Those can usually be identified surgically, intraoperatively, and then a a closure with the suture can be performed. Whether that then increases the risk of fibrosis and structuring later or incomplete myotomy, um, those types of things can come up. Risks from those procedures can be, I don't know, 10, 12%, 8 to 12%, depending on what studies you're looking at um, when we're talking about like leakage or perforation uh, after the surgery. So, you know, that's where POEM kind of comes in. And in children, there's few centers performing this uh, procedure in kids. So we have probably four centers now performing this with any regularity. Um, and then a few other centers who um, have done it a couple of times, perhaps. So I would say that, you know, in kids, the outcomes look so far very similar, depending on which center you're looking at. Um, but when we look internationally, so those four centers I named uh, or uh, referring to were in the U.S. When we're looking internationally, our overseas colleagues have done this for a little bit longer, have had shown very good outcomes when, you know, comparable to what we see in adults um, with a pretty good safety profile. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about because we, you know, newer procedure, we're entering this third space that's very different. Um, And obviously there are risks of complications for the other methods for treating achalasia, like you mentioned. But can you talk about the safety of POEM and what types of things we would need to think about as far as potential complications? Yeah, so, you know, the nice thing about POEM is that because it's all done endoscopically, you know, we have a less invasive approach and patients generally wake up with less pain. Uh, They're going home the next day after the procedure, even in the adults, there's many centers that are sending them home same day after the procedure. So there's a lot of bonus with this procedure. Downsides as far as like actual say, uh, risks from intraoperative complications, few. So I would, I would put that number at about less than 2%, maybe 1% for infection, and maybe you know 1% for bleeding. 
And then occasionally there's a tech, you know, reported technical failure from the procedure itself. You know, you're not able to complete it. And so that's the nice thing about home is that you can start the procedure and you're not committed until you're doing the myotomy near the end. But, you know, that said, you know, our, our real thing that we're looking at is kind of what's the clinical success of this procedure longer term. So folks that have been doing this in adults, uh, there's some 10-year data showing, you know, 90-plus percent success rates, uh, which is comparable to uh, heller myotomy. We're seeing 80 to 90 percent clinical success. And then in kids, we're seeing 90-plus uh, percent success rates at four-year data, which is the longest published data that's out there. So... I think it's a very favorable procedure. Um, you know, it's still relatively new uh, compared to what we're doing in adults, but has been showing a lot of promise. I mean, I think the big takeaway for me is that if you do have a patient with echolasia and you're discussing different potential treatment options, that you should really keep this poem in mind. I mean, at least reach out to Dr. Khan or one of the other interventionalists who do this procedure just to talk about risks and benefits, because it seems like it should be on the table. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, and this is what patients are looking for nowadays, too. I mean, so we have patients who will just come to us because they know about this procedure. They get diagnosed with echolasia. The first thing they're going to do is go online. What are the treatments out there? Mm-hmm. Um, Um, And so people look at, you know, surgical approaches versus endoscopic approaches. And a lot of the patients that we perform this procedure are the ones who want to favor a less invasive, faster recovery uh, with good long-term durability. So how young can you do it? So as far as age ranges, so it's easy to do this in adolescence. I think it's a little trickier is when we start talking about younger kids. You know, we just published some or presented at uh, NASPGAN our our less than 10-year-old data Mm -hmm. um, and, and down to age one. You know, there's some technical nuances when you start talking about the really young patients and trying to, you know, we can talk about that too, you know, what that entails. But um, as far as, you know, doing this procedure, I think it can be done uh, safely, you know. So, you know, then the question is like, who performs the procedure? So, you know, if you're talking about a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, many times folks will refer to their local adult gastroenterologist for the procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think, you know, if you have a good relationship and, they, and, and a good involvement or engagement from that uh, physician, I think it's very good. You know, for us, you know, we kind of take this on as a multidisciplinary approach, you know, between motility, myself um, and others to really kind of take care of the patient as a whole, you know, as we tend to do in our pediatric centers. So for the younger patients, you know, I, I've, I'm a big advocate that kids should be taken care of by specialists who are geared for kids. It's not just a procedure, you know, this isn't like, oh, I got to play with my toys. These are tools that are being performed to, to take care of patients. Mm-hmm. And it's but the most important thing is that we're doing the best for the patient long-term. Um, and so, having these in hands of, of specialists who take care of kids regularly and kind of know the nuances. And it's not just the technical stuff. It's also the relationship you establish with the patient and kind of the long-term goals. Because as we know, a lot of patients with achalasia, you take care of them once, you treat them, and then you don't see them again. Mm. But there are so many implications in kids when it comes to growth and nutrition that is still so important in those younger ages. Mm. Yeah. Makes sense. So one concern that's always been out there about POEM is that it doesn't involve an anti-reflux procedure like a Heller myotomy with a partial fundoplication might have. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts about people who are worried about increased reflux after a POEM compared to maybe a laparoscopic Heller with a partial fundoplication? Yeah, so I think Ajay kind of alluded a little bit to this in his episode about kind of some of the downsides that can occur when you have a fundoplication performed in a patient who already has dysphagia due to an aperistaltic esophagus. So what are the long-term risks though? So uh, let's first talk about the fundoplication. So when um, the surgeons are performing the hellermyotomy, they're usually performing, uh, but not always, but usually performing a, heller, uh, a fundoplication. So there's two main types. And the most common type is the door fundoplication, where they take some of the fundus and just kind of move it over the area that they just operated on. And so that offers a couple of nice things. One, it's a little bit of a fundoplication. And two, it kind of covers the area that they just operated on to kind of reduce some of the risks of leak or infection. The other fund application that's often performed is a toupee fund application. So this is where the fundus is taken and kind of pulled back posteriorly. And then the uh, fundus is tied 
tied on either side with sutures to the just recently opened myotomy. So it's kind of like as you're opening your jacket or, you know, Clark Kent opening up his shirt to reveal Superman, <laughs> you know, that's sort of holding open the myotomy so it doesn't refibrose. So those are kind of the, the nuances with the fundoplication. When you're doing poem, there are nuances as well that we can perform to reduce the risk of um, this. So one of the things that I love is using endoflip. Mm-hmm. Um, I think endoflip offers you the ability to kind of get that sense of what that distensibility is like of that lower esophageal sphincter. And so I'll use it intraoperatively kind of pre-myotomy and then post-myotomy. And then that gives me a good gauge. And we have data now in the adults that says, you know, this degree of improvement tends to lead to kind of a, a, a nice therapeutic window mm-hmm. where you're, you've reached enough of a myotomy so that you're going to have good technical or clinical success long-term, but you're not making so big of a myotomy that you are now going to create florid reflux. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing to also keep note is like when we're performing this procedure, there are intrinsic or inherent factors of the stomach and kind of how it's modeled. Um, so we have these gastric sling fibers that kind of perform, you know, an anti-reflux measure naturally, um, kind of between the cardia and the fundus. So performing the myotomy and kind of identifying those muscle fibers is important and kind of veering away from them during the myotomy is, is critical as well. So those things can actually help reduce the risk of reflux. So when we talk about reflux, whether you're getting a Heller myotomy or you're getting a poem, you can expect about a 40% reflux uh, rate. Now, whether that's clinically important is a different question. So most patients who have clinically symptomatic uh, reflux, we're starting to see, you know, we'll probably see like maybe consistently 6%. And then we're saying, you know, well, what about the intermittent symptoms? Maybe 40 plus percent may have intermittent symptoms. And then we talk about esophagitis. So, when you look at reflux and you're assessing the esophagus after any of these procedures, you know, what is the risk of esophagitis and what degree of esophagitis? So, you know, a lot of folks will use like LA classification or grading to assess this. So more mild is more common, but more severe, more moderate to severe, like class C to D is very infrequent. So when we talk about that after a poem, we're looking at about 5% of severe esophagitis. So it's not very common that you see a lot of troubles from reflux, but if you did a pH probe in everybody after a poem you would, or a hellermyotomy without anti-reflux procedure, you would see about 40%. If you do a poem and you take into account endoflip measures, you take into account things like um, salvaging the gastric sling fibers, you're probably gonna, your studies have shown like you reduce that rate of reflux down to about 15 to 20%, which is actually very similar to what the reflux rate is after hellermyotomy with fundoplication. So... You know, I think that it's important to recognize that, yes, early days when we were doing POEM 10 plus years ago, we definitely were not doing an anti-reflux procedure. Today, when we're doing it, it's not the same. We have a much more refined approach and we have other skills and technologies that help us maintain good clinical success with minimizing um, that concern of acid reflux. But at the end of the day, you know, you're still taking care of patients with achalasia doesn't matter what therapy they get. They should all be monitored. You can't just say like, oh, you know, they got a hellermyotomy and we did an anti-reflux procedure and you're going to be fine. Yes, you've reduced the rate or you did a poem and you've managed to, you know, salvage the gastric sling fibers and you're using endoflip. Yes, we've reduced the rate of reflux, but you still need to monitor these patients because right. lifelong risk of acid reflux is esophagitis that turns into Barrett's esophagus, that turns into dysplasia, that turns into neoplasia. So, how do we minimize that risk? And so we do that through careful surveillance. Yeah. Okay. So a specific nuance that um, I wasn't aware of, but you've mentioned that POEM really can be used as a salvage, for, specifically after maybe Botox injections, which you previously mentioned is more temporary, but also after pneumatic dilation. I wasn't necessarily aware of how doing those prior interventions affects the POEM until you started you know, talking about it in conferences and things like that. Can you please talk to us about how those prior procedures affect the performance of your future poem? Yeah. So this is largely a unknown thing. So this is more based on perception that if you do Botox injections or you do pneumatic dilation as the patient recovers um, and heals, they will have some level of fibrosis develop and that fibrosis is often in the submucosa. 
that's so because is that very region you're performing the poem in because you're tunneling through it. And so the worry then becomes is do I then have a more technically challenging procedure because they've had a previous intervention. Fibrosis can lead to you sort of driving through a blizzard mm. and you can't kind of see things like the car in front of you or a blood vessel. Um, and so you can run into some challenges in that capacity. You know, I think that when a patient has had those things, I'm always reluctant or nervous or think about it. And I have that kind of conversation with them. And sometimes we'll find like an alternative approach. For instance, if they've had a hellermyotomy already, then that's the anterior approach. I will favor a posterior approach. If they've had a previous poem posteriorly, I'll now do an anterior poem. But Funny thing is, you know, so we all talk about this as interventional endoscopists, like, oh my gosh, you know, do we really want to do a poem in a patient who's had multiple pneumatic balloon dilations? And then a study came out last year in GIE that said, you know, how did it look in reality in patients who've had it? Turns out they had equally effective results um, procedurally. They had shorter procedure times if they've had previous injections or dilations and they had fewer complications. So go figure. So we should be doing that yeah. like a pre poem. Uh, and just kidding. No, 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 That was one study, small series of patients. I'm still, um, I still think that if a patient's going to come and present with achalasia, let's find the most durable long-term option possible. Yeah. Generally with myotomy is my preference. You know, whether you choose poem or versus Heller, I think it's a little bit debatable, um, there's reasons that may favor each. Um, my preference is always a less invasive, less painful approach with a shorter hospitalization and a lower complication rate. But um, you may not have access mm-hmm. and you may have very good surgeons. So a hellermotomy may be just fine. Yeah. That makes sense. So, I mean, if anything, that question is, I think, more relevant to the next topic we want to discuss, which is gastric poem or oh G poem. Yes. Because, you know, as you know, <clears throat> for those same patients, we'll routinely do a pyloric Botox or dilation. So how is G poem different? Like, what is that? All right. So what is G poem? Let's start with that. So G poem or gastric peroral endoscopic myotomy. So this is something where we are performing a myotomy on the pylorus. It's focused for patients who generally have gastroparesis or gastroparesis-like symptoms. And it is still kind of relatively newer in this uh, realm. And in studies, initially folks were doing this in the adults and we're like, you know, data looks okay. I'm not totally sold on it. This is a difficult patient population. And then this study came out in, uh, I want to say in Poland. Uh, And let me pull it up. I have it here. Uh, endoscopic pyloromyotomy for the treatment of severe and refractory gastroparesis randomized sham controlled trial. <sighs> 20 patients in each arm uh, looking at your GCSI or gastroparesis uh, symptoms reaching less than 50% at six months post procedure. Sham group 22% improvement, GPOM group 71% improvement. Woo. So that's pretty good. Yeah. So that kind of turned things upside down for us in this uh, realm. And so I've started thinking maybe G-POEM is a good solution for patients. And so now the AGA is a clinical practice update that has said, you know, G-POEM can be used for select refractory gastroparesis patients with severe delay and gastric emptying. There's still a lot of, you know, questions, but it is being done and we are doing it as well. We have a very careful patient selection process, but we'll We'll use either gastroparesis or uh, gastroparesis-like symptoms. And so, you know, many of these patients have had previous interventions, uh, but some have not. And so I would say, you know, if you're thinking about somebody who has delayed gastric emptying and you, and you do the endoscopy and you see the pylorus is narrow, if you have endoflip available to you, you can pull that out as a technology. It is not validated for this, but I can tell you it gives you some sense of how spastic or hypertonic that pylorus is and whether what you're seeing of a narrow pylorus or what you're thinking about and delayed gastric emptying is related to the pylorus. So I'll pull out the endoflip, use it on the pylorus off-label and measure. And, you know, some folks might say, you know, a distensibility index of less than 10. I might favor, you know, at, at this stage, you know, less than five really kind of picks up patients who may benefit from a more interventional approach with a poem However, if you do this and then you say, you know, it is low and you're going to do a Botox injection, 
maybe spare the six o'clock or the posterior approach, or maybe spare the 12 o'clock anterior approach and just inject in the other three quadrants because perhaps that leads to less fibrosis in the region where a future poem may be performed. And then kind of document, of course, in your note where you did your injections and where you spared so that the future endoscopist may know where to tunnel from. You know, but however, if the last Botox injection was a year ago, yeah. probably enough remodeling has occurred that fibrosis may not be as much of an issue. Good to know. Yeah, we could do a little, little tattoo, like a enter here. <laughs> this is the area we spared. So uh, general rule when it comes to submucosal endoscopy is we hate tattoo. <laughs> okay, uh, tattoo leads to the most severe fibrosis. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So like, for, yeah. So like if you're taking out polyps and people have previously tattooed nearby, just uh-huh. like, here's the polyp. Like wow. just document in your note where the polyp is and we can find it. Um you don't have to tattoo. If you are going to tattoo, tattoo far away. Yeah, yeah. The don't enter here. <laughs> Wait, okay. So this isn't a prior question, but I have to bring this up because we're talking about these patients with severe gastroparesis. And I just want to hear yeah. from both of you. Like, you know, we have very little data on pediatrics, like you mentioned. So how do you see G-Poem being used in relation to gastric stim? Yeah. So I think this is great. Like, yeah. this is such debate. a cool, this is no, like a, it's not a debate. Actually, yeah. they're very, it's not no, they're very complementary <laughs> to one another, right? So, uh, you know, when you think about gastroparesis, like, what is the problem? Is the problem the outlet not being patulent or open enough, or is the problem the motility mm-hmm. and that there's inadequate motility pushing things through, or is it both? Or, or is it sensation related? Sensation? Right? Because, uh, you know, as we <clears throat> discussed in our gastroparesis episode, like. I think it's still very debatable how much emptying actually plays a role in symptom generation, you know, because we know symptoms don't correlate with emptying or fixing emptying. Symptoms are the same. So I think that's the question. Yeah. And so we'll often collaborate on these patients. And so some of the patients will start going through the G-POEM pathway. And then perhaps, you know, one day if they find that there's still a lot of sensory issues, then maybe we'll go down the gastric stimulation pathway. Mm -hmm. Some patients have gone through the gastric stimulation pathway and have had improvements in symptoms for a period of time, but then have refractory symptoms. And then we'll go down the... Uh, pathway of looking at their pylorus and seeing, you know, maybe we should make it more open. But, you know, it's not automatic, like, oh, yeah, you do one or the other all the time. You kind of have to think through some of these patients, a little bit complicated, but... I mean, we talk about this all the time. So mm-hmm. we're not, it's not a debate. We are a team. <laughs> yeah. These are honestly like, these are treatments that yeah. target different processes oh, yeah. that can be complementary. So there's now data on how combining gastric stim with G-POEM leads to better benefit than either one alone. That's mm-hmm. true. That's so true. there's that some, was, uh, that was just published exciting. Here. Yeah. It's presented DDW. So, mm-hmm. so we also wanted to ask a little bit about endoscopic bariatric procedures. Mm-hmm. Cause I feel like that's something that's a growing area in the adult world and, yeah, there's all these new medications on board, you know, that are in the market now that can help with weight loss. But uh, clearly, obesity is a problem that needs more than just one thing to fix. And this could be a whole episode on its own. But what are the different options? What are people doing for that right now? Cliff Notes version. Yeah. yeah. So very, very high level stuff. All right. Um, so I can give an overview. There are other growing experts in the space, you know, like Travis Peaster out in Seattle Children's, who's uh, performing this procedure um, in kids. All right, cornerstone to most bariatric procedures, mm-hmm. whether it's endoscopic or surgical, is ga- reduction of gastric volume. Um, so whether if you know you do a surgical approach with a gastric sleeve or a sleeve gastrectomy, or you do a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, in the endoscopic approach, we generally have balloons mm-hmm. and other devices that are kind of fill the space. And those are very good, but there's been worries about the risks with them. You know, if the balloon migrates and mm-hmm. does it cause an obstruction? Is it and it's only it tends to be temporary and it's improvement. So what do you then bridge to? So so balloons are great as bridges, but may not necessarily be great on its own long term. But generally speaking, pretty safe procedure and one that we probably underutilize. I think that the kind of new thing is the endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty. So this is using suturing to reduce the volume of the stomach. Um, Yeah, it's really cool. You take your double double channel um, gastroscope, and then you have this device on there, which is about 18 millimeters. So this is going to be for the larger patients. Uh, It's not necessarily for small kids, but teenagers um, and adults. And you can basically perform a line of suturing several times through different parts of the stomach and then do it again if you need to tighten it up further. And it's, you know, less invasive. Uh, long-term outcomes look very good. But, you know, you kind of 
right now we're just sort of finding the right patient populations for this. You know, is this, is this the population that isn't quite ready to have surgery? Uh, maybe they have, maybe their BMIs are 30 or 35. Um, or is this like the more severe obesity classes where we're talking about BMI 60 plus and we do something to get their weight down before doing something even more aggressive, like a, perhaps a Roux and Y or, yeah. or, a, or a sleeve gastrectomy. So yeah, most important thing about endobariatrics is this has to be, has to be, has to be part of a very well thought out multidisciplinary obesity kind of based program. Yeah. Um, because this is, this is a job in itself and definitely an episode in itself. So the balloons are just down. like hanging out in the stomach. They're like free yeah. floating. floating. They're not secured. Yeah. So the, like it's, oh, yeah, like you kind of, yeah. you take an empty balloon and drag it down into the stomach and then you find the access point on the balloon um, and stick a needle into it and then inject Inflate. and inflate wow. it with saline. Crazy. Yeah. Wait, do you like tack it down somewhere? Like anchor it? No. So it's like, uh, so it could easily obstruct the pylorus. Uh, it's meant to. Oh, dang. Right? Wow. That's. Interesting. Yeah, the whole again, the whole idea is you're trying to reduce gastric volume. There's other cool things out there, I and mean, people can swallow these little capsules. Um, if you think of those, what are those water beads? Yes. Mm. Yeah. So they, that don't swallow those. Explode. Yeah, if yeah. anyone's Baby listening, blow up, please, please don't swallow those. No kids. <laughs> uh, but there's a medical device that um, they put essentially things like that, wow. uh, or like little foam pellets inside yeah. of a capsule. You swallow the capsule. Capsule dissolves in the stomach. And then suddenly these things are expanding in your stomach. Yeah. And maybe a little more challenge there with migration and sure. obstruction, uh, different than the balloon. But, you know, baby shark tank idea would be uh, place a G tube and just blow the balloon up really big. Mm-hmm. It's been done. Oh, dang it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's what the early devices were. I mean, there's even devices where you are basically putting in a large bore G tube. Mm. And how would you drain it? And then they just drain it all out. Oh, dang. That's like, seems like it's like you're purging i mean yeah it is so the idea here really is there's lots of different ways of skinning that cat right and so just kind of always thinking in new approaches and new different ways of of managing a really challenging problem yeah 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 i think the key takeaway right multidisciplinary team again making sure you have a plan and and like a thoughtful approach um it's not just you know putting balloons it's Randomly. not that simple. Not that simple, apparently. Um, so you gave us a grand rounds here at Nationwide a while ago, and one of the things that really stuck with me was your discussion about the instruments that we use and how, especially for our smaller patients, not only are procedures technically more challenging, but sometimes the tools themselves may not be adequate. And so I heard you were doing some work with some manufacturers to help develop these smaller tools. Um, First of all, did I remember that correctly? And second, yeah. if yes, can you walk us through what you're doing? Yeah, so let's tackle that first problem. Tools for doing high-quality endoscopic procedures in kids. I will tell you, we have come a long way since when I was in training. Our neonatal gastroscope had a 2.0-millimeter working channel, and the only thing that would fit through it was an injection needle. APC soon came around and now there are APC catheters that can go through those smaller channels and the newer versions of neonatal gastroscopes have increased their working channel diameter to 2.2 to 2.4 depending on the brand you uh, use. So that's opened up a lot of possibilities and so now we have just about everything potentially to go through uh, neonatal gastroscopes to perform interventions with exception of a clip. And so whether that clip is your traditional clip or an over-the-scope clip or uh, suturing devices, you know, we don't really have them for the neonatal scope. That said, we do have suturing devices that go through the scope and go through a 2.8 millimeter working channel. And we do have over-the-scope clips that go over two point uh, standard pediatric gastroscopes to perform a lot of kind of interventions and therapies. So when I think about this stuff, I'm thinking about trying to help babies or in children who have acute GI bleeding. But I'm also now thinking about, too, like what about infants who need an ERCP? So one of the things that I work on with others in our NASPGAN kind of subgroup here is developing this concept of or redeveloping this concept of a, a slim duodenoscope for babies who need an ERCP. Roberto Gugig kind of beat that drum uh, during his episode, I will continue to beat that drum with him. Uh, this is one of the most vital things that we need because we do not have that technology anymore, essentially. A few centers still have these old scopes. There's a 
currently defunct rental program for that scope. So yes. So, huh. and then if you have that scope, it will break every third usage oh, and wow. you send it out for a month to get repaired. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a problem. It's a real problem. So, and it's not just us. Like we're not going to be the only ones that use this. The adults can use this too. There's yeah. a lot of reasons why they can use this. So as far as like, you know, other things that I'm working on, um, you know, specifically with poem, like trying to do poem and younger kids, you know, developing some of the tools and devices that can allow the, us to do that procedure. So, you know, one of the things that we developed was this, um, cap device that we allows us to do poem in infants and, and young children. So we can do the entire poem using a neonatal scope and wow, not a regular crazy. scope. Yeah. Wait, so we, for like pyloric stenosis? No, so not quite yet, but for achalasia. Mm. Yeah, I mean, pyloric stenosis in infants, yeah, maybe one day. We still have to develop some clips or some type of suturing device to close the stomach, um, mucosal incision site. Um, and then we still have to show that the endoscopic approach is superior or at least this, as good as the surgical approach, which the surgical approach is very good. Oh yeah. So when there's really not going to be adult data to really be able to have them. <laughs> no. So, the right. Field, exactly. So. so, but the G poem, I mean, essentially it's a G poem. So the procedure exists. It's just, you know, so we're developing some animal lab ideas here and, and pursuing that as a concept right now with one of uh, the surgeons I work with here. I, th- I think there's promise, but we'll see. We've hit on some of the stuff that we think might be coming in the future, but if we zoom way out and uh, think about big picture, you know, obviously a lot of these things that were done surgically uh, are now possible endoscopically. Um, what do you see as kind of like the future of advanced endoscopy? And you can take that whatever direction you want. Yeah, and there's so many different things that we can talk about as far as where endoscopy is heading. And then, you know, we always look to our adult colleagues as to what they are doing lately. But then there's novel things we can be doing in pediatrics as well. And I think we just talked about that, like infantile pyloric stenosis Mm -hmm. and using G-POEM for that. That's like such a cool idea. So that may be in the future. I think that when we talk about other endoscopic procedures, maybe we can treat Hirschsprung's. with a poem. But it wouldn't be poem anymore. It wouldn't. Pay him. Prem. So it's already, yeah. So it's already been done. Uh, (laughs) Dang it! Yeah. So overseas ideas. I think at least twice that I know of, and probably more than that. But one in India, one in France, perhaps. Um, And they've done this. It is a little more challenging because where you tunnel from is also where you need to do your myotomy. So you're kind of creating a perforation, and so Mm. I think you have to have good like suturing Mm. capability to close that defect. How do you take out the dismodal segment? Yeah, this is just be very my, short. Segment. Yeah, short segment. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah it's got to be short segment. Um, Definitely not long segment. It is, yeah. but then you're now inheriting <laughs> Hirschsprung's, which is an entire, you know, colorectal specialty. Like, there's a lot that goes along with that. It's kind of like taking on bariatric oh, yeah. endoscopy. Oh, yeah. Like, there's a lot that you have to inherit. You got with an episode that. on it. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, so. What else? I so you know we were talking a lot about reflux. So I think there's anti-reflux procedures. So one of the things that we're doing here also is uh, anti-reflux mucosal ablation. And so you basically are retroflexed in the stomach and then performing a mucosal ablation using a a version of uh, APC to just obliterate the mucosal layer around the cardia. And you do that so that then as it scars, it it tightens up. Wow. which creates like an that's anti-reflux crazy. barrier. So I don't know where that's going to head uh, in the adults. They're doing it. It's been around for a couple of years or so. I think there's a lot of interest in it and there's a lot of potential, Yeah, but we'll have to see, you yeah. know, because how durable is something like that over the long term? One doesn't know yet. Um, I think endoscopic ultrasound, there is so much because now we can start to see into that second space and other Mm -hmm. structures. And so we can start intervening into those places. And so things that the adults have been doing is, for instance, like malignant obstructions of the pylorus. How do you get around that? You can take one of your aluminum opposing metal stents and create a conduit from the stomach directly to the jejunum using this. And so now you've basically created a gastrojejunostomy surgically yeah. without having to do it surgically. Mm. So folks did this in malignant conditions, but now we're starting to do it in benign conditions. Uh-huh. And so there are, you find these patients in pediatrics all yeah. the time yeah. who have obstructions that you just can't get around. And then, you know, we're generally operating on them surgically, but maybe there's endoscopic approaches. 
I think that kind of where poems sort of started from is from this concept of notes or natural orifice, mm-hmm. trans, luminal, endoscopic surgery, mm-hmm. which never really took off when it first came about. And mostly that's because we didn't have the tools sure. to do it. I mean, you have one single working channel that you can stick one device through and it can only do so much. Nowadays, we actually have devices like the dual channel scope and we can mm-hmm. put like a little robotic arm through it Crazy. and then you can actually manipulate tissue. Yeah. And then you can also have an, a second working, like let's say you don't have a, a dual working channel. You can get a second working channel added to your scope yeah. with another device. And then what folks are really looking to is robotic endoscopy. Um, yeah. So, you know, now folks are like thinking about like, how can you take a scope and then it goes in and then it splits. Uh-huh. And then now yeah. you have two kind of working arms yeah. and then you're controlling it through essentially like how the Da Vinci machine works too. Yeah. So lots of cool things, lots of potential for kind of a surgical approach. I think our field essentially is going to switch shift. Uh You know, I think that's kind of where this future is heading. You know, we're doing so much more stuff in diagnostic endoscopy, chromo endoscopy, endoflip, et cetera, et cetera. And then you start bringing in these interventional procedures. I think endoscopy in itself within pediatrics is becoming its own field. And, you know, there's so much potential and so much excitement in it. But it's not to say that it's going to be completely its own field, but maybe it will be one day. I think this is really, really exciting. I think a lot of people go into GI because of their interest in endoscopy, and there's just so much coming down the line. Muhammad, if you could give us just three takeaways from the episode, what would they be? All right, three takeaways. So takeaway one, I think poem is becoming kind of the new standard for managing echolation in adults, and it's likely to become the same for kids. At this time, I think for kids, it still requires a thoughtful team approach between motility specialists and interventional endoscopists at centers of excellence. But I think that's key number one. Key number two, POEM is becoming a promising therapy for gastroparesis. And especially when you start thinking about combining it with other therapeutic options, like gastric stimulation may become really something special. I don't have a third key point. You guys... Well, a lot I mean, of new my, stuff is coming. No, Exciting I, I, things. My key uh-huh. point from this is that if you're really passionate about something, just yeah. go after it. Even if yeah. you, you know, come to your post-call days and spend time in endoscopy lab or go back for extra training after you finished your GI fellowship. I yeah. think follow your passions. That is crazy. Like that 10 years point. in as an attending. Yeah. Man. I mean, and your and your wife's a physician. It's not that easy to like and we and uproot we, her yeah. and your son. And we did. Well, he was a baby. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, we've done a lot of crazy things in our lives. She, I mean, yeah. But it's been it fun. Worth I mean, it. it's all been now worth it. Lunch. It's been so much worth it. Yeah. Now we have so, lunch every day. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so once again, thank you so much for joining us. That was such a good episode. Obviously, we could talk for another like two, three hours. I would estimate at least easily. But okay, but looking back, you know, you mentioned some of the people who kind of inspired you early on in your medical journey. Um, what's one piece of advice that you were given that you would also give to others? The best piece of advice I can get from anyone who's inspired me is from my parents. Mm-hmm. And the advice they have given me is build your own happiness. Don't expect people to give you what you think you deserve or what you need or what you want. Build it, find it, and make it happen. And it and it will. And, you know, that's the same advice I would give anybody is just build your own happiness. Dude, I love it. I love that. So good. You're so nice. I was about to ask him, since we've been talking so much about poems, to give that advice in a haiku format. My parents say, I had to look it up, five syllables in the first line, seven in the second, five in the third. Happiness um, in a So for the listeners... Peter Liu is currently on his phone on oh. Chat GPT. Are you ready? To get, yes, here we go. Chat okay. GPT haiku poem. Craft joy in moments. Forge smiles with love's gentle touch. Build happiness strong. Ooh. Wow, that's so good. That's so good. <laughs> that is beautiful. Thank you, Peter Liu. <laughs> Thank Lou. you. It's a teaser for the <laughs> next you. episode on AI and endoscopy. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. All right. Bye, Muhammad. Thank you, guys. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Some hesitation there. No, none. Okay. Okay. What a great conversation. Oh, it was so good. (laughs) I mean, we talked so hopefully, I'm sure we'll cut it shorter, but we talked for like almost an hour and a half. Yeah. And we had like more to go. I think the only person that we talked that long with, do you remember? Well, B. Lee, we B. talked Lee. for uh, two hours. Yeah, we yeah, talked for two hours. Was, uh, it was oh, so man. great. Awesome. <laughs> so, 
right. Thank you, Dr. Khan, for taking the time to sit down with us. We hope that everyone listening enjoyed this as much as we do. Yes. And if you don't already, be sure to check out the merch website. Link oh, yeah. is uh, in the show notes. Oh, yeah. And follow us on uh, Twitter slash X and Instagram at, at Battle Sounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast. We'll uh, be dropping stuff with the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did all or one of the following three things. Tell a person about the podcast, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover the podcast. And on the Buzzsprout page, you can support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspghan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. Uh, The discussion views and recommendation of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field with an endoscopy is moving Mm -hmm. very fast. Yes, yes, yes. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time. Bye. Bye.